Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, on this day, one year ago. After months of preparations, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. I'll speak with two women leading humanitarian efforts live from two different locations in Ukraine. Plus, airline travel has made its post-pandemic rebound, we all believe. I'll talk to the general manager of Hartsville-Jackson International about future expansion for one of the world's busiest airports. And a Spelman College student shares how the retail giant Target is helping her business grow through its Black History Month collection. Important conversations coming up, but we'll begin with this. Georgia lawmakers are considering another round of bills focused on transgender youth. These measures would ban health care providers from giving certain medical treatments to help children affirm their gender identity. We hear more from WABE's Sam Greenglass. The two bills deal with care for kids experiencing gender dysphoria. That's the clinical term for the distress someone experiences when the gender they identify as doesn't match the one they were assigned at birth. SB 140 would ban gender-affirming surgery and hormone replacement therapy for minors. That bill passed a Senate committee this week. SB 141 also bans puberty blockers, which delay puberty. That bill was sponsored by Republican Senator Clint Dixon. Young Georgians electing for surgeries below the age of 18 when they can't join the Army, buy alcohol. There's a lot of things that they can't do. This is definitely one of them, in my opinion. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, quote, comprehensive gender-affirming and developmentally appropriate health care. The guidance says surgery is not very common for adolescents and should be considered on a case-by-case basis. A Trevor Project study found that trans youth who received hormone therapy had lower rates of depression and suicidal thoughts. Some doctors and academics say more research is still needed, though, to fully understand the effects of these treatments for adolescents. Jen Slipikoff has a trans daughter and spoke against the bills. If a family and their physician are comfortable administering treatment, why on earth does the state need to be involved? Why don't you trust parents of families like mine? Lawmakers are also considering a bill to restrict discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in schools. Last year, the assembly paved the way for new restrictions on trans kids playing school sports. A recent NPR analysis found that state lawmakers introduced at least 306 bills targeting trans people in the last two years. 86% of them focused on trans youth. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other legislative news, ban the boot, maybe? A bipartisan group of state lawmakers has filed legislation to completely ban the booting of vehicles in Georgia. Democratic State Senator Josh McLaurin says immobilizing vehicles is basically overused and abused in the state. It's so low cost to the property owners that a lot of times booting companies will put boots on cars that they're not sure are unauthorized. So you've got tons of people who actually pay the fee or they're invitees or guests of the, the property and they're still getting booted because it's much easier for the property owner to just let the driver and the booting company figure it out than to care about the inconvenience. McLaurin attends, intends for Senate Bill 247 to ban anyone from booting, including governments. So we ask you, what do you make of these two pieces of legislation right now that state lawmakers are considering? Let us know your thoughts via Twitter or email rose at WABE.org. Closer Look continues in just a moment. Support for WABE comes from 
the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. My next guest should enjoy hearing the following. It's from the International Air Transport Association. Quote, expect the airline industry to post a, quote, small net profit of $4.7 billion in 2023, with more than $4 billion passengers set to take to the skies. This is all as air travel has bounced back after the pandemic disrupted domestic and international flight travels. And so we know that Hartsfield-Jackson used to be called the world's busiest airport. I don't know if they still have that title. Well, let's check in with Ballroom Biodari. He's the general manager of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. And joins me now to talk more about all of this, along with some updates, including airport construction and airport goals for 2023. Ballroom, welcome. Thank you, and good afternoon, Rose. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you this afternoon. All right. Well, listeners want to know, are we still the world's busiest airport, or we got some work to do, and, and who took our title? Well, if I was a betting man, I would bet on Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International <laughs> Airport to retain the title as the world's busiest. We are waiting for our official con- uh, confirmation from Airport Council International. Let me ask you this, and we'll get this out of the way. Does it really matter if we have that title, or do you? I mean, you take pride in that because you don't want to be the general manager that loses that title forever, right? Um, no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, it's 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 a pride like anything else, right? Atlanta Airport is sitting on the globe on a global platform, mm-hmm. and so it it means a lot for us. It means a lot for my peers across the industry, not only nationally, but globally. So having the title of the world's busiest airport, a lot of eyes are focusing on us. You know, you came aboard under then Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. My goodness, Ballroom, you came in during the pandemic. There is no planning for that, even with your your background in aviation. How has the airport, how would you assess how Hartsfield-Jackson has been able to bounce back rebound we keep hearing that the airline industry has has rebounded has bounced back would you say hartsville jackson's done the same thing uh yes and so when i came in in april of uh of uh that 20 2020 actually mm. um this notion of having a consolidated effort collaboration among all our stakeholders. I think there was a secret sauce to our success. And so um, coming off of that, as I work with my team to um, develop our strategic plan, our strategic focus in our strategic mission, the first two words in our strategic mission are the words one team. Mm-hmm. As you said, Atlanta is the world's busiest airport, and it does not take the Department of Aviation alone to get there. It takes everyone pulling in the same direction as one team for that success. And so I will tell you, we finished in 2019 was our busiest year on record at 110 million passengers. Mm-hmm. In 2022, we completed the year moving 94 million passengers through our system. Mm -hmm. It took an entire village for us to do that. So we are very proud of that notion. Right now we're in a space three years, you know, into the pandemic and and still it hasn't been undeclared, so to speak, but folks are, we're in a space where folks are talking about what lessons have been learned and for your industry, for what you all are working with, what is that lesson you think has been that, that top sort of eye opener for how we move passengers, whether it's domestic or or international, what does that take away for you? So it's, it's about being um, nimble, being flexible. We have a lot of plans to handle various type of emergencies. And one plan that we did not have in place was a pandemic. We have pandemic plan, but we didn't expect that this pandemic will last uh, going on to three years now, right? And so what we did is we all thought as an aviation industry, we thought, oh, this will be over in 60 days, 90 days. Mm-hmm. But as this as this pandemic started growing in nature, we had to be very, very nimble in what we're doing as the country starts shutting down and as air service start dropping off, we had to be nimble again and be flexible. How do we continue to manage this complex 
because we could not shut our complex and we still have to maintain the facilities, the runways, the light and everything else. So coming together as again, this notion of one team, airlines, federal partners, contractors, concessioners coming together as one team, we were, uh, I mean, we were absolutely successful in putting mm -hmm. together a playbook in record time and, and going off of the playbook, able to manage our overall drawdown of operations. And while we were doing that, the team pivoted very quickly to start looking at resumption of our operation. So while we were drawing down, we were already focusing on the resumption of operations. And that's what um, enabled us to be so, so successful in 2021 and 2022. 2021, we moved 75 million mm -hmm. passengers. 2022, 94 million passengers. And throughout all of this, too, there were some expansion, some construction that was underway. I believe it did halt for just a brief moment. Bring our listeners up to speed where we are, because y'all got a lot going on out there. Uh, we certainly do. So what we did, you're absolutely correct, Rhodes. In um, in 2020, we put a pause for a very, very short period of time. I think it was about 60 to 90 days to look at our safety protocol. And once we establish our safety protocol and we put it in place, we resume our construction activity. And so in 2020, 2021, we delivered over $900 million worth of construction project, completed construction project. And in 2022, we open up completed uh, construction project uh, somewhere around $628 million, mm -hmm. some major uh, project. And one of those major projects is the extension of our concourse T North with five additional gates, mm -hmm. right? And we, at the same time, while we are completing and opening up these successful projects, we also completed in 2022 over $600 million in construction, in approved construction projects. So we're building for the future. We, we pause for a, a slight bit, but we continue on our schedule to build for the future, preparing this airport for the next 20 years. It's as if one of our listeners is looking at my script because I have an email that says, my goodness, Rose, ask him about parking. So that was actually on my, listen, parking. I know everybody would love to be able to park right next to the Delta gate, but that ain't gonna happen, folks. But you all have some expansion in terms of parking and also electric vehicle, these charging stations. Let's start with there. What's the progress with more charging stations for electric vehicles. So we have an entire suite. We, we just put together a sustainability management plan, and we are looking at the, an entire suite of our store chip and sustainability, right? Mm -hmm. And electric vehicle and electric charging station is among the entire suite. So we are very focused on looking at the growth in that industry and looking at the growth of electric vehicle coming to the airport to make sure that we have the appropriate accommodation for, um, for the electrical need of, uh, of in, the, in that program. And what about the in additional parking spaces? You, you're going to create at least, what, 3,000 or 4,000 more parking spaces? You know that's important, Barbara. It is. It's very important. So I just want your listener to know, Rose, that we have over 31,000 parking spaces. Well, that's not enough for this listener, space. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, but when you have aging facility, right, you have to start deliberately closing facility to make sure that you fix those facilities. So we just completed the South Deck on uh, the 21st of February. And so the South Deck is now uh, fully open and we're pivoting to the North Deck to repair the North mm -hmm. Deck. And we'll take out about 300, uh, uh, 3,000 parking space off of our 31,000 spaces out there. And we have to do it because we have to maintain mm -hmm. the facility. And there is no better way of doing this than having to uh, create and it will cause some inconvenience to our passenger. Mm -hmm. But listen, we're pushing a lot of information out. We have we have several parking options available to the uh, to the listening public here. Plus, you could come get online and make a reservation so you're assured of a parking space when you get to the airport. All right, I want to get back to the construction just a moment, but I do want to pause because. Out of all this, and you of all people, you know this, that when it comes to something, massive expansion and construction, people worry about sustainability and, and limiting air pollution. What measures are going to continue to be in place in terms of that? So uh, Mayor Andre Dickens has put together a very robust sustainability program of which the airport is part of, right? And so as we look at our overall uh, sustainability program, we are building to meet um, 
regulatory standard, whether it's local or federal standard. In addition, we're going above and beyond in terms of um, energy usage here, car carbon footprint um, reduction, and LEED certification for every building we're building or renovating going mm -hmm. forward. I have another listener says, how about some mega major solar for Hartsville ASAP? Now, you can take that. <laughs> Oh, yes. I mean, we, we are focusing on that. So we have to do a, a set of analysis, right? Uh, there's very specific analysis that we have to do because of aircraft operation, glare analysis, location, location to the flight path, and so on and so forth. So my team is in the throes of doing those analysis. We are looking at several sites for mega solar energy mm -hmm. program here at the airport. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation with the general manager of Hartsville-Jackson International Airport, Barbara Biodari. I want to I want to get back to the construction, too, because, as you know, this is so important when the city or you all are looking at contracts and, and make sure you're, you're awarding contracts to these different vendors, uh, that diversity and there's a, an equity process in that. What role do you play in ensuring that? So uh, in contract, I give guidance to my team, right? And I want our contracting process to be transparent and be free of any taint. So I, I, I divorce myself from the being a, an evaluator or, or, or looking at contract and said, we need to select A or B. It is a very transparent process overseen by both the Office of Contract Compliance and the mm -hmm. Department of Procurement. But you, but you so, are in favor. But, uh, well, let me uh, back up. Are you in, but, but you would... Like there be for it to be a transparent and equitable process, though, I guess. Oh, ab absolutely. I'm totally in favor of that. And the other area that we are focusing on is economic opportunities in all these contracts that we're putting there in our multi billion dollar capital program at, uh, for small business enterprise and minority and female business enterprise mm -hmm. to, uh, to provide economic opportunities for this segment of the population that for the most part have been left behind. I think it's fair to say when you head into Hartsfield Jackson Interna International Airport, you got everything that you could need there. You can get a haircut, you, you can, there's all type of eateries. Is there something that you would like to see in the airport that's not there now? Um, we're looking at, uh, there is two things I'm looking at, more of a local option, because especially our visitors from out of state, when they get into the airport, they're looking for local option, food and beverage, local options, right? And uh, in speaking with Mayor Dickens, both of us have this vision of how do we create more uh, more opportunities for a mom and pop who have a business but does not have the opportunity mm -hmm. to expand this business. So we're looking at micro business. I would like to see some more micro businesses in food and beverage or retail and in this airport to give opportunity to those um, small, very micro businesses. Mm -hmm. And I also want to mention this before we let you go, and it relates to human trafficking and, and commercial sexual exploitation of individuals. I know the air, airport, like some airports throughout the nation, but you all have been partnering and, and allowing signage and making sure that there is a, for people to see, basically if you see something that does not look right or if you if someone is caught up in that situation and they need help, that you all are providing signage and being part of the uh, anti-human trafficking initiatives. This is a big focus of ours. We we want to be a part of stamping out the scourge of the earth, right? And you you, you hit it. If you see something, we carry it up uh, even a step further. Say something about mm -hmm. it. If if it doesn't look right, just call nine one one and report it, and we will get to the bottom of investigation. And I must say that this uh, this initiative have the focus of our governor, our mayor, our federal partners, and our stakeholder, including the airlines. So it's a consolidated one-team approach in, in, in trying to um, mitigate. I don't know if we'll ever solve it, mm -hmm. but send a clear message to traffickers that Atlanta is not a place, Atlanta Airport is not a place for you to come and do business in human trafficking. Part of your three strategies that you all focus on, you have the three P's, you have people, purpose, and performance. Where do you hope all that intersects, and, and is, is there a, 
a metric that you use to say, look, we've achieved this. We have reached this intersection of, of focusing on people, purpose and performance. Oh, absolutely. When it comes to people, you know, um, it's 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 the in the under that pillar there are four um, four element or four category of people, four sub element. First of all, my employees. They're my most important assets. So I gotta take care of them, especially at their health and wellness, especially mental, mental and physical wellness. And we're doing a we have an entire suite of program to take care of our employee. And then reaching out to um to uh, again this concept of one team to our stakeholder, reaching out to our stakeholder to provide that ex exceptional service, end-to-end -end service for the third uh, element the customer mm -hmm. how do we take care of the customer and lastly how do we engage the community as a whole to understand the airport uh, uh, economic uh, impact to the region and the and impact um, economic opportunities that exist for our communities and we have a we have a number of metrics that we use and and we have set first of all established goal mm -hmm. and we uh, do a quarterly review to make sure that we are on path to achieve those goals and at the end of it we summit it all up um, into uh, whether we attain those goals or not and I will tell you especially in economic opportunities for small businesses and minority um, I think Atlanta Airport is above free and we are probably number one in the country. All right Barun Biodari General Manager of Hartsville Jackson International Airport Thank you so much for taking the time. I believe this is one of your first interviews since you came aboard. We appreciate yeah. that. Well, at least with you, Rose, and I hope to talk to you more often. Thank you very much. Truly appreciate the time with you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Today marks one year since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine using airstrikes and explosives to destroy so many homes, schools, hospitals, and regions. After months of preparations, the Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. I decided to conduct a special military operation. Its goal is the protection of the people who, for eight years, suffered from abuse and genocide from the Kiev regime. We urge you to lay down arms immediately and go home. On Friday, Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed the nation. The enemy has marked me down as number one target. My family is the number two target. They want to destroy Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state. We are all here. Our soldiers are here. The citizens of our country are here. We are all here protecting our independence, our country, and it will continue to be this way. Right now, there is a sound of bombardment coming from all around us, and all of the civilians from this area are fleeing. Let's go. We're in an area of northwest of Kiev, where there's been intense fighting over the past few days between the Russians and the Ukrainian militaries. There is intense bombardment. Oh my God, coming from all around us right now. Jesus Christ. And that audio courtesy of the BBC and Vice News. The number varies, but it's projected more than 8,000 civilian deaths in Ukraine. And in terms of troops, more than 200,000 Russian soldiers are believed to have died. Plus, millions of Ukrainians have fled their home country. Ukraine, with the aid of several nations, including the United States, is still defending and resisting Russian forces. Meanwhile, many humanitarian efforts continue, and many are led by women. We're going to head to Ukraine where there is a six-hour difference. I'm joined now by Maeve and Daria. We are only going to use their first names. Maeve is a manager with Care Ukraine. And Daria is the deputy head and project manager at NGO Girls. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Rose. Daria, let me start with you. Ukraine is your homeland. As you think back to one year ago today, and if someone had said, you know, this is going to last a year, maybe more, could you have even believed that that would be possible? 
Mm, yeah, I think so, actually, uh, because the war um, started in uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a local conflict. Uh, it was only for the eastern part of Ukraine, but still um, we were faced with that and we lived in the country torn by war for many years. Um, even when the large-scale invasion started exactly one year ago. Um, so actually, I don't know if I may, I, I may not speak for everyone, but speaking for myself, mm -hmm. I could tell that it, um, it will last long uh, because I knew for sure exactly one year ago that Ukrainians will resist and neither I know anyone I know believed in capturing Kiev in three mm -hmm. days, actually. And Daria, I want to ask, how is your family? You don't have to give the location of them, but are, are most of your family members safe? Have you lost anyone? Um, fortunately, I have not lost my family members. Um, unfortunately, I have lost a friend um, who was um, a soldier in Ukrainian army. Um, and my family is from a small town um, which is shelled since um, since last summer actually but i've managed to um, to relocate them um, to me mm -hmm. so now we are all in a safe location but still of course thinking about our homes and i don't know property friends and family who are left there under shellings but fortunately um, they are not occupied so mm -hmm. it's, it's a good news well, we're glad to hear that because so many lives have been lost. Maeve, I want to bring you to the conversation right now. If you can just give us maybe not the exact location, but the region. Are you in northwestern? What part of Ukraine are you currently in? I'm in western Ukraine. Okay. And in the what's interesting in all this is why we wanted to have you all on because we know that with so many of the men fighting and, and a lot of these humanitarian efforts are being led by women. Maeve, I want to go back to you for a second because you are, are with CARE Ukraine. What efforts are you all providing? So CARE Ukraine is working to support Ukrainians that are responding to the humanitarian crisis as well as neighboring countries that are responding to support refugees um, that are crossing borders to find safety and CARE is working in partnership with local organizations and primarily through women's rights organizations and women-led organizations, such as the NGO that Daria works for, uh, to ensure we are supporting the, the voice of local actors and civilians that have been responding from the beginning of the war. How is that, or what are the challenges that are still existing in terms of helping folks who are trying to flee and, and either get to nearby countries or even just trying to leave? What is that process like? I mean, there are many challenges that, uh, in relation to just financial expended costs to be able to travel and leaving your family behind, and and there are restrictions on on men being not being able to leave the country and political leaders not being able to leave the country and finding housing when you do uh, leave the, if you are able to leave the country and 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 just acceptance in communities and languages and so there are numerous mm -hmm. challenges um, and I think as the time goes on a year passed and and going forward those challenges will, increase as sometimes the international appetite for supporting um, such issues lessens. So it's important that we maintain focus on supporting those needs. Daria, you are the deputy head and project manager at NGO Girls. For our listeners, what is the mission of this organization? Um, so we are a nonprofit organization and we are operating in Ukraine since 2019 before the large-scale invasion, actually, our character of our work and our activities uh, was very different because we were an awareness-raising educational project for women and girls, educating them about their uh, reproductive health, sexual health and rights, um, hygiene and uh, things like that. But when the large-scale um, invasion started, we understood immediately that the needs are very different and we need to cater to them because um, there was not, no understanding of who um, who does what. Mm -hmm. And we all understood that we need to do as much as possible. So 
um, this year we started uh, providing psychosocial support. Mm -hmm. uh, we started equipping and supporting shelters and community centers for people to live in, but also to just spend their time in, um, providing, again, uh, legal support because so many people faced legal problems they weren't prepared for. Um, so basically, we now try to cater to all of the needs as much as possible and, you know, to listen to individual stories and provide as much as we can. Here's a question for both of you, because, you know, obviously doing something like this and doing what you all want to do, you have to be mindful of safety and security. And I'm wondering also, do you have to check in with, you know, military personnel in terms of is this area safe? What area do we need to get to? And is there a some sort of alliance where you all have the security that, that you need to travel with? I'll stay, stay with you, Daria. Um, yes, we have uh, updated safety and security policies in place because um, we understand that um, people who need help may be on the territories that are very dangerous to move in for our personnel and that we might actually lose our own people trying to help those. Um, so yes, we consult with the local authorities and also I'm happy to say that there are some international and Ukrainian um, NGOs that specifically center around working with humanitarian workers and providing them with safety and security updates regularly on a daily basis and providing them with some tools and mechanisms on how to monitor situation and how to equip better. Uh, so we try not to operate in dangerous locations mm -hmm. um, and stay um, as much away of, of any danger as possible. But still, um, for example, in case of um, artillery shelling or just um, rockets, we cannot be 100% safe mm -hmm. anywhere in Ukraine, unfortunately. May, what about with your organization? Yes, uh, similar in that we, we don't work in occupied territory um, and in terms of as you go further east and are approaching the front line, we coordinate similarly at, with local authorities, with UN agencies and with local partners who have those relations and contextual knowledge on the ground for those specific locations, as well as having our own security team that's supporting us with updated information daily as well. I want also to just shift for a moment and focus on you two on, and what you all are doing. Uh, you are in living, experiencing a traumatic experience right now. How are you personally, how are you all handling your own mental health and, and dealing with all this? And Maeve, I'll start with you. Um, I would say for, for my experience is nothing compared to what Ukrainian nationals experience daily, mm -hmm. given it's not my family that and not my country. And so I can't imagine uh, their experiences um, from the perspective I have working and living here. We do try to just take breaks and time to step away from the work. That we're doing and spend time with friends and family communicating and talking and and really also acknowledging the the positives of the the work that everyone is doing so not only thinking about the the negative side of things but really uplifting the amazing work um, and actions that people like daria mm -hmm. are doing daria how are you managing through all of this I'm very happy that actually one of the first things uh, we as NGO did um, in the beginning of the invasion was we launched um, like a psychological hotline for our own personnel. So we have um, some mental health workers um, who are providing us actually with mental health sessions um, and supervision for our own psychology um, mental health workers. So we have that access to that kind of support and it was very helpful because these people are Ukrainians as well and they understand completely what we're all going on uh, through. But um, in everything else, I would just agree with Meve. Um, I'm very much relieved because my own family and friends are relatively safe and because we are continuing to help and we see real improvements and real results of our work. And that inspires me and just keeps me going. When we start this conversation, and I asked you all about going back to a year ago and, and 
thinking that this would we would still be talking about this um, optimism for everyone. We would hope that maybe this doesn't go on another year of happening. Meve, I'll go back to you as we wrap up. What is your optimism regarding this? And when you all, perhaps, and even even when it, after it, it ends, you all will still be needed. But your optimism in terms of when this is all over. I think it's, I, you know, I believe in the Ukrainian resistance and the people of Ukraine and their resistance. Um, I, I do believe it's very important to consider the, after the conflict ends, to consider women and other marginalized groups' voices in the reconstruction and recovery of the country. And it's very important to support and adjust the kind of legislative and and structural needs to you know, to support their voice and leadership in that in those spaces and to ensure women and and marginalized groups have a have a say in the reconstruction and recovery efforts. Hmm. Daria, I'll give you the last word. Yes, I would totally agree because I see changes already going on and the results of the of our own resilience um but also of the incredible support that we have got from other nations, other people, just international organizations and everyone involved. Um, it has its fruits. And I believe that, um, first of all, we will achieve you know, victory and peace after that, mm-hmm. but also that we will be able to build this new society we're aspiring to have, uh, which will regard, which will take into regard um, women's voices, um, children's children's voices, and the voices of marginalized groups um, in a better way. Daria is the deputy head and project manager at NGO Girls. Meve is the manager with Care Ukraine. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Please be safe, and we'll check back in with you. Thank you very much. And Closer Look continues now from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. For some years now, retail giant Target has honored Black History Month with an expansive product collection. They even put full marketing, merchandising, and media campaigns. And the goal was to fuel growth and provide economic opportunities in the Black community. Well, Pamela Kerminga is the director of multicultural merchandising at Target and played a critical role in bringing Target's Black History Month collection to life. And Candace Patrick is one of Target's three HBCU Design Challenge winners this year. She's a sophomore computer science major at where else? Spelman College. Yes, but she hails from Oakland, California. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. I'm so excited and honored and privileged to share the work of the team and connect live with you and to hear Candace or Cadence's perspective too along okay. the way. Well, let's start here, Pamela, and take our listeners back to how Target began to showcase these Black designers and, and even going beyond just celebrating Black History Month. What prompted all of this? Yeah, so Target does a really wonderful job, I think. I've been there my entire career of continuing to keep a pulse on what really matters most to people and standing and stepping further into its values over time. And one of those spaces we knew we had opportunity to grow um, was celebrating both Black History Month, but also thinking about how year round we can amplify diverse perspectives and Black voices. And so I am honored because that's actually my job full time. That's a cool job, huh? (laughs) Wonderful job. (laughs) And listen, this targets this HBCU design challenge Uh, Take our listeners through what you all were looking for. Yeah, so from my lens, and I would love to hear Cadence's perspective too on the other side of this, we're always looking for what is going to feel resonant by the time it happens, right? And so always history during Black History Month, um, but truly dipping into what the youth thinks about the moment is critical. And so um, thinking about growth, education, and Genuinely, something to inspire is always top of mind. All right. So let's bring in Cadence in here. Cadence Patrick. Now, first of all, you're from Spelman. 
Okay, you go to Spelman. You know, I know y'all got that little Spelman thing that y'all do. But what led you to submit something to this HBCU design challenge? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. And I first found out about the HBCU Design Challenge um, through Handshake, which is an app that is basically LinkedIn for college students and Spellman uses it. They encourage students to create an account and uh, get recruiters and things like that. Um, and so that's how I found out about it. And when I saw um, the application, I was thinking this could be a really amazing way to spread a positive message and get that out to the world. And so that was what inspired me to apply. And that is what I think I ended up doing. So it's been a really amazing journey and there's 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 just been so 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 much behind it um along the way so tell our listeners about this design and 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 take it further about the inspiration what is it here yeah, so my design is titled Black Futures Are Bright, um, and it depicts um, my younger brother, uh, he's the subject of it, um, holding basically this ball of light that uh, says Black Futures Are Bright. And so when I was thinking of what I wanted to do with my design, I thought, what is something that I can say that is positive, that is forward thinking, that is empowering, that will resonate hopefully with anyone who reads it. Um, and so I landed on Black Futures Are Bright because I think one of the things about Black History Month is there's this concept of we are looking back in the past and reflecting on our history, but we also need to be looking towards the future. Mm -hmm. um, and we are. I, I wanted to sort of emphasize that and uh, thinking about that, the fact that I am part of this collection and that I'm able to share the message with the world, I'm kind of, we're all creating black history at every moment. And so that is sort of the, the vibe that I wanted to give. Um, and so, yeah, it's been really cool to see uh, on kids and babies and things like that, because that really is what re represents is the future of, of the black community. And I got to tell you, my producer, LaShawn, she sent me a picture, black futures are bright. It's on a little infant, like a onesie. And she's like, I'm getting this for Larvine. <laughs> so you've got one sale already. Uh, Pamela, when you hear the passion and the enthusiasm coming out of Cadence, and, and this is what you all want. Absolutely. Um, I think I mentioned this, but it's about inspiring and amplifying voices like Cadence's. And it's genuinely the best part of my job that we get to make connections with the creators and makers and ideally start relationships that span not just Black History Month, but think through what could be next. Um, it's a wonderful position to be in. And I love that Target's using its scale for such positive impact. So it doesn't just stay with Cadence, but so many people um, have an opportunity to experience it. So with the, with these, with the products and with, you know, things like what Cadence is doing, it goes into stores. How long does it stay up? Uh, how much does Cadence get? <laughs> yeah. So actually here's a fun fact. Black History Month at Target, the collection, sets in January so that people have a time to like shop it, have a moment to actually um, be ready. So that way, when thank you for going, be thank you for going beyond 28 days. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And um, I mentioned this at the upfront, but my job is actually to think about not just these moments, but every day, how do we bring different black owned brands front and center? So target has um, a series of commitments through either target forward or reach that are really about investing in community. Um, and so one of my overarching goals is to invest $2 billion with a B with black owned businesses by the end of 2025. We're well on our way with that. And it's programs like this that are a part of that investment. Okay. Now you can answer the second question. Uh, does Cadence get oh, our cut? Yeah, <laughs> there are actual prizes that happen with the HBCU design challenge. Uh -huh. um, so there is this moment in time where her, um, obviously her products in store, but then she gets um, prize winnings in terms of dollars like uh, as a part of it. So, Cadence, it, it, are you happy with it? <laughs> yes, I can verify. I did. <laughs> I did receive the prize money um, and the prizes. So yeah, that's it's been amazing. And I think they update it every year. So each year, winners are getting uh, more and more amazing prizes. I have a listener that says, Rose, my little cousin Mackenzie from Norfolk State, Norfolk State was one of the winners, so I guess we can we can give a shout out there to McKenzie. Uh, Cadence, I want to come back to you for a second. Uh, how will this help you also as you think about your future and what you want to do? I know you're a com computer science major here, but is this you have a future in also launching a full product line here? Well, 
who knows what the future holds, um, but this has been a really amazing experience because um, as a computer science major, uh, there's not a lot of major related classes that are, you know, artistic in nature, but I do have an artistic background. So I'm from Oakland. I went to Oakland School for the Arts for middle school and high school. So there I studied visual media, visual arts and digital media. And so that was where I sort of was able to develop my artistic skills. And so this was a really amazing way to sort of jump back into that and create a platform for me to uh, use to show, show the rest of my artwork. Yeah. Pamela, these emails are like, how can my son or daughter enter next year? How often do you open up the application process or how, how early do you open the application process yeah. for this? So uh, target, target Magic takes a long time to work. I'll say that much. Um, and so we're actually currently interview or uh, we're going through the applications for next year's submissions already. So you'll have to look. It usually goes out in January every year um, for us to get applications. So we're reviewing 2024 ideas right now. So we'll have to look next year for 2025 ideas. Really? You're, you're already yeah. through for 2024? Yes. It's a wonderful process. I think over the last week, I've looked at over 50 different um, submissions. Um, and there'll be voting. There'll be discussion internally. We get to semifinalists and finalists and then bring them into the target sort of uh, magic. They get to help understand what it takes to bring product to stores which mm -hmm. is not a small undertaking no, um, at all and yeah it takes a long time to do that so we start early and, and and Pamela for folks who are listening or for for young folks like Cadence who are, are listening here when you all you talked about that two billion dollar commitment here how do you obviously the success is, is part of that because I imagine you wouldn't target wouldn't continue if this wasn't successful how do you all measure that though yeah, so um, a handful of lenses here. So top of mind for most people are probably the products that you would buy at a Target store. So think a Black-owned business or the t-shirt that Cadence designed. But it also extends to all elements of what it means to be a Black-owned business. So think supply chain, banking, et cetera. And so it's really this full 360 approach to how we are um, evaluating our success in that space. And we continue to beat the goal that we established for the year. Um, I think since 2020, it's an over a 60% growth and we're well on our way to that, uh, that aspiration. I think it's a wonderful aspiration. We'll continue to evaluate it, see what could be even bigger and better. We are very into continuous improvement in my world. And so whatever we can do to continue to invest and, and level up, we'll do. And we should let folks know you have the HBCU design challenge, but you also have other areas for, for entrepreneurs and, and, and small startups as well. Yes. Um, if you go on to the Buy Black Hub or the Black Beyond Measure Hub on Target.com, you can get a lot of really great information. We have accelerators programs. Those are about maybe uh, younger businesses, younger entrepreneurs who have ideas, but maybe need some coaching about what it takes to work at Mass. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we have these design challenges intended to connect with students. And then for those more mature businesses, we um, just actually this last week had a Black-owned business vendor fair internally. Um, so we're always finding ways through the entire sort of life cycle of the work mm -hmm. to engage, to collaborate, to educate, um, and invest. And Cadence, for someone listening, it says, wow, you know, I don't know if, I, if my design's good enough, or I don't know. What advice do you want to give to them? My advice is just go for it. That's what I did. That's how I felt. You never know what's going to happen. When I submitted, I did not in a million years think that I would be here right now talking about this. <laughs> um, so the best thing to do as an artist is just believe in yourself, believe in your skill, believe in your passion. Um, and yeah, just take that leap. Just go for it. And Cadence, when you found when you found out, did they send an email? They send you a text? Did they call you? How did all this come about? And did you scream? Yeah, and did you, yeah. Who'd you call first? <laughs> it was either your mama or your grandmama, I know. It was my mom. <laughs> um, they sent an email. So first I was selected as a finalist. And then I, a couple weeks later, I was emailed that I was one of the winners. I remember I was in my dorm. Um, I get the notification. I am like freaking out. I call my mom. Um, it was like the craziest moment ever. But yeah, it's just been amazing since then. Well, we're very proud of you and congratulations um, on your design being chosen. And Pamela, I'll give you the last word here. You know, for folks listening, it says, well, this is great. You know, it, you feel like there are more. And you don't speak for all the retail giants out there, but programs like this, the importance of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I see what Target is doing as a large investment in community and building generational wealth and investing in the future, but also 
intended to be industry leading to push not just mass retail, but all industry to think about how they can invest specifically in the black community. Um, I think it's, you know, candidly something that we all have a responsibility to do in retail um, and love that my job affords me the opportunity to, to be a focal piece for that. Um, it aligns deeply to my values. All right, Pamela Kerminga, the director, the director of Multicultural Merchandising at Target and Cadence Patrick, one of Target's three HBCU Design Challenge winners, a sophomore computer science major at Spelman College. Shout out to Spelman College. We love y'all. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. And again, congratulations, Cadence. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderworth. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or it's, you know, any other program like y'all usually do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And also we want to thank everyone who came out to our coffee conversations, our live community conversations at coffee shops. You never know where we're going to pop up, but we'll let you know. If you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And by the way, if there is a coffee shop, coffee, tea, cafe that you think we should drop in and talk to the community about what's happening, send me an email. Again, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.